0: Hey everyone, welcome to Fast Talk, your source for the science of endurance. I'm your host, Chris Case. Coach Lindsay Golich is a sports physiologist who's worked with the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee in Colorado Springs at their Olympic Training Center for the past five years. She works closely with USA Cycling and USA Triathlon in areas of environmental physiology, including altitude, heat, and humidity, as well as data analytics for performance modeling. With Lindsay's help, today we tackle several questions related to her areas of expertise, including heat acclimatization, sweat rates, altitude effects, regulating temperature, and then also FTP testing and fasted training. All that and much more today on Fast Talk. Let's make you fast. Hey there, Fast Talk listeners. Now you can join the smartest online forum in cycling for free. Our popular new forum is now open to all members of Fast Talk Laboratories. Join for free and you can discuss recent episodes, ask follow-up questions, and even chat with some of our episode guests. And starting next week, our members will enjoy a special perk. Don't miss out. Sign up now at fasttalklabs.com. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Fast Talk. I'm your host, Chris Case. We've got Trevor Connor, Coach Connor in the house today as well as Lindsay Golich. Lindsay, welcome to Fast Talk.
1: Hi. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show.
0: Tell us, Lindsay, wh- what's your what's your day job?
1: I'm a sport physiologist with the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee in Colorado Springs. I've been with the organization for about five years, and uh, where I work, uh, we have a facility called Sport Sciences, and that uh, consists of sports physiology, psychology, technology, and dietetics, Um And we have this really amazing lab at the Olympic Training Center that we have access to all these great different technologies, tools that we work with our summer and winter Olympic athletes.
0: Great, and yeah, I think a a lot of the questions we um, selected today have to do with heat acclimation, uh, sweat rates, altitude, and that's because you've really worked extensively over the last few years getting getting uh, high-caliber athletes ready for Rio, and now you're working on getting ready uh, for Tokyo, and of course, being down in the springs, you're always dealing with the effects of altitude. Is that Do I have that right?
1: Yeah, you do. Exactly. And so when I came on board, um, we had a, another senior physiologist, Dr. Randy Wilbur, who literally wrote the book on Live High, Train Low, Training at Altitude. Um, So our big background in physiology is really what we consider more environmental physiology. So looking at ambient temperatures, altitude, um, and the sports that I really focus a lot with or work uh, quite a bit with are more endurance sports. So cycling, triathlon, um, and a few distance runners where, you know, those differing environmental conditions have a significant impact on training and obviously on race day performance. Um, as we got ready for the Rio 2016 Olympics, we had a, a pretty big heat initiative, um, and then that's been supersized as we get ready for Tokyo, since Tokyo has the potential to be the hottest Olympics um, to date that we've had, gosh, probably over the last, you know, 50 or 60 years.
0: Wow, great. Well, let's, let's actually get into some specific questions that deal with some of the very topics we just mentioned. Our, our first question comes from Dan Swenson. On uh, regulating temperature, he writes, Being wet and in the wind with bare skin is really going to chill you, and being dry and in cold wind is going to chill you. The nuance I want to ask about is if you compare being damp with sweat under a rain jacket with being dry but having no windbreaker at the same temperature, is there a difference in the chilling effect? Or is there perhaps a crossover temperature where one becomes more heat depleting than the other? I'm thinking this could come into play when racing or training on rolling terrain where having no windbreaker would be more comfortable on the climbs, but having a windbreaker would be more comfortable on the descents.
2: Doesn't this sound a little bit like one of those high school questions of a train left Philadelphia going at <laughs> speed? <laughs> <laughs>
0: it, <laughs> is, it is a little bit. I mean, we're, talking, we're splitting hairs here, but Lindsay, I don't know if you've had time to think about this. Do you have a, a, some thoughts here for
1: Dan? Yeah, this one, you know, I would say it kind of like stumped me a little bit of just trying to figure out how best to go about it. The most important part is having a relatively stable core temperature. So rather than I know we've been talking about, you know, getting hot, now we're talking about a little bit about being cold. For me, I work primarily with our summer athletes. So I've only done a few uh, um, assessments with athletes, you know, going cold and looking at their efficiency and economy um, you know, for cycling and running, um, and what changes, um, again, what I have found that, that this is also very individual, um, some athletes can better tolerate different conditions. And a lot, a lot of this goes just to body, body mass. So again, lean mass, fat mass, and where you're carrying those different, those different, uh, areas uh, of fat mass also make a big difference on, you know, your comfort, Um, but I would say, you know, you can take the simple example and when you watch the Tour de France, you know, athletes, they're climbing up these mountains and it's raining and sometimes bleeding and snowing. And then on the descent, they're stuffing their jerseys with whatever they can find, you know, if it's putting on windbreakers, windbreakers jackets, newspapers, um, you know, uh, bags, whatever it is to keep cool. So, you know, the more comfortable you are, the better decision making you'll have, especially on a descent with reaction time. So. You know, I think that's the safety thing, and also um, ability to maintain a higher speed. Um, you know, individually or within a group. This one, I would say, you know, we, we won't would want to test, but I think too, you could go back to like an acclimatization process. That you know, even if you, we know through some heat acclimatization testing and and research that even with heat acclimatization, with a simple five to six day protocol and the thing special an hour a day and heat at a low intensity, we do know that it can help to regulate body temperature in colder environments. Um, I can't remember the study, but it it came out probably in 2015, 2016 or so. Um, so again, I mean, I think those are things we want to be fit. uh, but there are some things just having the correct clothing, um, and being prepared for those conditions is, is, uh, what I would say is most important than anything else.
0: And Trevor, I know you always have thoughts when it comes to clothing and temperature and regulating temperatures. What what would you say here?
2: I was the same as you that I I looked at this question and I I didn't even know where to start. And where I started was just asking a whole bunch of questions like what is the ambient temperature? How hard did you go to get damp? How long are you going to be without a windbreaker? There's so many factors to consider here that I found it really hard to answer the question. And so I, in those cases, tend to go towards the simple, which is, as you know, I'm a believer in overdressing. Uh, There is a simple, you can unzip. Why does it have to be an either or? Why not have the windbreaker, unzip it on the climb so you don't overheat and then zip it up when you start the descent? Uh, That would tend to be my approach. Uh, going to to what you just brought up about racers and stuffing anything they can in their their jerseys. Uh, yeah, I can remember a couple races that were absolutely miserable. So I remember this one Mount Hood. It was about 45 degrees Fahrenheit. It was raining, and this is back when they had the rule that we couldn't wear knee warmers or arm warmers. So we were all standing there and jerseys and uh, and shorts, not a single one of us was sitting there going, oh boy, I'm dressed right for this race. <laughs> Any one of us, if we could have put on more, would have put on more. And I was stuffing newspapers down my, my jersey for the descent simply because anything I could do to warm up, it was a miserable race and we were freezing. Uh, so the mistake I tend to see athletes make is get over-concerned about that, over-concerned about what happens if I get a little sweaty? What happens if I overheat and underdress and, as a result, underperform? And, and every pro I've talked to about this says the same thing. I have never had to quit a race because I was overdressed. I have quit many because I was underdressed.
0: There takes some forethought as to what you're going to need, and this obviously depends on a training ride versus a, a, a race where maybe you want to uh, – you know you're going to be hard going harder in the race you know that weight is somewhat of a consideration but you still don't want to cut all the corners and not be um have a, at least a layer extra for uh that by chance it starts to rain or it gets cold or or whatever um but yeah i'm with you trevor overdressing is i've i've taken that to an art form but that's what zippers are for that's what they were made for uh, it's up to the rider to regulate their own temperature. There's no rules about that. You got to make some judgment calls and figure it out for yourself. And if that means stopping just for a minute to shed a layer and put it in your back pocket, do so. Don't necessarily think that you have to keep rolling and try to j- take your jacket off or whatever and then uh, risk crashing just to keep moving. You know, the, the, this is, we're not pros here. Um, we're not descending off the Stelvio trying to grab anything from the fan to shove it in our uh, jersey to to stay a half a degree warmer. So take the time to just regulate temperatures and um, don't worry too much about carrying an extra jacket. It's a couple ounces, right? Yep. Our next question comes from, and it is a, uh, a follow-up to a previous question, Pete Ying, and it... This question is on the effects of temperature on power zones. He writes, You've mentioned before how important training at different energy systems is, and that using power and threshold values to set these relative cutoffs for training different energy levels is crucial. How does ambient temperature and or core temperature affect energy systems relative to threshold? For instance, If it is at 200 watts at a normal core temp and an ambient temp of 70 degrees Fahrenheit, what happens if all of a sudden that person trains at 200 watts but an ambient temperature of 95 degrees or 45 degrees? Does that change the energy system that person is training? Similarly, what happens if the core temperature increases or decreases during a ride? Even if that individual rides at the same power, would that change the energy system that is trained? Lindsay, I'll turn it over to you. What, what thoughts would you share for Pete?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's an excellent question. And I know, again, within endurance sports core temperature is uh, such a critical part um, for a lot of competitions um, and racing. But my, my quick answer is that no, the core temperature um, does not change the energy systems that's being trained. And for simplicity we can break down our energy systems really into three bins our aerobic energy system a glycolytic and anaerobic and unless you're like a track cyclist or a a sprinter um, through track and field i'm going to assume that 90 percent of your training is more aerobic or glycolytic and even the higher majority of those two bins becomes more aerobic Um, and since we're machines or not machines unfortunately um, we have zones within training, and these zones will cover those bases of those training our energy systems. Um, I find it more important to really understand what's actually happening because of the ambient temperatures. There's a ton of research that um, shows that the impact of the ambient temperatures, so high heat, high humidity, um, really can change the growth efficiency. Um, which is the ratio of work generated in the total metabolic energy cost within cycling. Um, and when when we look at this, there's a lot of time trial um, studies and researches out there that shows that performance does deteriorate in the heat. Um, but what that exact percent decline becomes very gray. Um, we know that there's a decrease in growth efficiency and this accounts maybe for about half of the power loss. Um, but a good portion of that is, due to increased skin blood flow, which we use for cooling, but because of this, it kind of has a stealing effect on the muscular blood flow. And then this has a negative impact on the growth efficiency of cycling. But when we look at, you know, do you want to adjust your training zones and different things like that? Um, again, my answer is no, um, or does it change your energy systems? There's a few different theories out there. you can change your zones. I've read a couple research articles depending on more extreme heat conditions, um, by up to 6%. But as always with a lot of this stuff, it's a general rule and that might work for about two thirds of the athletic population. So there's still a third of athletes out there that will not fall within that, you know, general recommendation. Um, And you can rely more on perceived effort, uh, you know, during prolonged training to figure out uh, really what type of intensity um, and things that you want to do. But we know that uh, as temperature goes up, perceived effort goes up, um, and then that can also begin to change your power output. So there's just things that we want to be really careful um, and cautious of when we're thinking of uh, like how we want to adjust training based upon these high temperature and extreme Uh, conditions that our bodies are facing.
0: Trevor, do you have any extra thoughts that you would add here? I think that's a great
2: way to look at it and fully agree. Um, We've talked on the show about how when you're figuring out your, your zones or figuring out particular power numbers, we tend to uh, and I'm glad you brought this up. Think of ourselves like machines, and we're not. So we've talked about the fact that you might get on the bike one day and your FTP is 250 watts. The next day, it might be 260. The day after that, it could be 230. You're going you're gonna to fluctuate. It's going to depend on how well-recovered you are, how well-rested you are, a whole variety of factors. So uh, what I basically took from what you just said is, can heat affect that? Yes, Is that just adding to the regular daily variability? Yes. So every day you have to go out and make some of that judgment call as an athlete. And this is really what separates an experienced athlete to be able to say, here's where I'm at today and not just arbitrarily say, well, my FTP is 250 and it's going to be 250 every day and that's what I'm going to ride to. The other thing I will add is all these things are stressors. So if you're going out in the extreme heat, you're adding a stressor to your body uh, to try to keep your core temperature down. So it's more demand on the body, which is going to add to the overall stress, which is going to affect your ability to recover. So doing work in extreme heat and humidity, you're probably going to need a little more recovery. Unfortunately, it's not adding to the training stimulus. It will it will help with your your heat acclimation, uh, but it might be a little harder to get the same amount of quality work uh, and still be in the the same state of recovery by the end of a week at, at high temperature, high humidity.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I, and I think you know this is always interesting. And I don't know if we'll get to this a little bit later. But the whole process of the heat acclimation is. Something that we really stress with our athletes um, and working on other strategies for that pacing and perceived effort and and what the nutrition and dietetics, like nutritional and hydrational um, contents need to go into minimize some of that stressors, right? So you're you're taking the strain and the stress from environment and actual training and trying to find that nice balance. as you move forward within, within your training and even competition. So I know that um, there's a lot of modeling out there too. And I I would say that I use it with quite a few of the athletes I work with. Um, I work with quite a few track cycling athletes and we know that the velodrome uh, when it's hot and humid gives us really fast times, right? So we try to seek out some locations where um like in Aguas Calientes, Mexico, high altitude, high heat, high humidity, and that tends to be where we see a ton of world records broken for uh, really the like individual pursuit and hour records and different things like that. But then there's that cost benefit ratio. Um, and so we've got a couple different um through some data analytics out there of figuring out what an athlete's efficiency is based upon different temperature bins, if you will. Um, but the way I use that, it really becomes so individual. Again, it's not a one size fits all that some people can tolerate the heat a lot better than others due to body mass, um, size and fat mass and lean mass, um, heat adaptation. You know, and then if you throw an altitude, that's another out adaptation or acclimatization that we're looking at. So it becomes a little bit more complex um, when we start to really get into the nitty gritty side of things.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of factors to take into account, and, and individual variability layered on top of all of those things makes it hard to to even have a rule of thumb here, but um, great answers. Let, let's jump to a question that, that does get to the acclimatization question a bit more. This one comes from Abdullah Matish. He's a coach. He's an athlete. He's lived in hot and humid tropics for the past 12 years, and he writes... My athletes and I race in hot and humid conditions, and by that he means 33 to 38 degrees Celsius, 80 to 90 percent humidity, four to six hour long races. Um, I've read many research papers on heat acclimatization protocols, and it's been part of my peak block. I also do this with many of the athletes I coach. Heat comprises – or sorry, heat compromises quality, intensity – So usually I do the heat acclimatization in the easier sessions, zone one or two workouts, but that's not race intensity. Is it worth acclimatizing at race intensity? Um, Lindsay, before we actually tackle this uh, question from Abdullah, I wonder if you wouldn't mind or if it would be helpful for you to talk about the, the best way to acclimatize as you've learned from the work you've done with the Rio athletes, the Tokyo athletes?
1: Both great questions. So, you know, the the main thing that we know with heat acclimatization is that when you look at the research, there's not anything that's earth shattering that's happened in the last four to five or even 10 years. But What has really shifted in just the total heat acclimatization process is the amount of tools or technology that we can use to actually assess and provide instantaneous feedback to athletes and coaches. And I think that has greatly accelerated a learning curve for pacing, power, speed um, at different parts during your heat acclimatization process, as well as training prescription from coaches. So I think that's something that's been What I've found over the last, you know, five years has been really um, the most impactful, just the different tools that we can use.
0: Could you give an example of one of those tools?
1: Yeah, you know, and simply like a simple example is, you know, Power Meter. I know this is not obviously brand new, but we can actually look at, at cycling efficiency and how that begins to truly deteriorate at a given power output over a period of time. On the bike, you know, we can begin then to see, um, are Is their pedaling efficiency or their delta efficiency changing um, as their fatigue sets in? And the fatigue we often know is not due to a time to exhaustion type of uh, issue there, um, but often an increase in core temperature. So one of the things that we use with quite a few of our athletes is that we have core temperature pills and we have this amazing environmental room here in Colorado Springs where it's about a 900 square foot room where we can adjust the temperature altitude or temperature altitude and humidity to really match any environment throughout the world. So we can go really hot, we can go really cold, we can go really high, we can go really low in altitude. And within those things for Tokyo, we will set the room to what we anticipate as being kind of the extreme temperature for the day. Or even in an example of like the the cycling race, the road race or time trial, we can adjust it where the temperature might actually continue to increase throughout the course of a four to five or six hour race. The men's race is going to be really long and pretty brutal in Tokyo. Uh, the road race. And from there, when we have athletes fall core temperature builds, we can actually begin to see in addition to their power outputs, perceived effort, but what's actually happening internally, and where their inflection point is, and then begin to put strategies together. So going back to the question of saying, like, are, are my strategies correct? Yeah, I would say, yeah, his, his strategies are absolutely correct, especially for longer endurance uh, events what we do at the training center or what I would say that I do with a lot of the athletes is that far out from an event. So we're looking at Tokyo and we'll say, you know, August 1st is an example of like competition day. So we've got about six months right now prior to our first event that we're actually going to run through um, a heat acclimatization protocol with quite a few of the athletes here in the next couple, couple weeks. So we can one assess the, the stress and strain that we're putting the athletes through in addition to training. So we have a better idea of just managing that training load of what that, uh, the heat, actually that additional strain that it puts on the athlete and the ability, you know, for that training session and our recovery. Um, so we have a better idea of how to prescribe that individually as we get closer to Tokyo In our protocol, it's, you know, somewhat pretty traditional. We're going to use about almost a three-week heat acclimatization protocol, and not every day, but, you know, anywhere between two to four times a week, uh, depending on the the load that each of the athletes have within their training. The main thing that we have an access to is that we'll use quite a few different methodologies rather than just training in the heat of the day or, you know, in in our environmental room at, you know, set conditions. We'll do some lower intensity training at a pretty high intensity. Uh, heat and humidity. We'll do some trainings outside that are just overdressed. And we'll even use some sauna, sauna protocols. And I found rather than just sticking with one protocol, meaning it has to be all sauna, all overdressing, or all, you know, training in the heat of the day, when we when we marry all three of those together, we actually can be less invasive to the training prescription from the coach, but also in a application gets the end result of that heat acclimatization that we're looking for.
0: Trevor?
2: I uh, have a, a friend who uh, was training for the China Olympics, which was, that was what, 2008? I believe so, yeah. Mm-hmm. So they were very worried about the heat, and he was furious because they they did these heat acclimation protocols that, that you know, one of them was uh, they, they set them all up in trainers inside a trailer. And had them basically do a training camp in this heated trailer on trainers, which all of them absolutely hated. And and he was furious about it because it was unnecessarily painful, uh, impacted his training. And I, I remember him grumbling, our job is to get as fit as possible and then just deal with it when we get there. And they're getting in the way of that. So, interested in you know, obviously you weren't doing something that extreme of putting putting athletes and train on trainers in a heated trailer for six hours. But what is your feeling on that about the balance between finding these things to adjust and just saying let's make the athletes as fit as possible, and then they just got to deal with it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely correct. You know, for any going into any extreme condition environmentally, the number one goal is get as fit as possible you know it is that simple but then you know for the olympics or if it's your a race or whatever it might be um you know we're looking for that one percent in in sports sciences i i always say that we're we're the one percent gain um as you come into my my arena that you know i have athletes that you know, obviously they're at the best of the best and we're either trying to find that, you know, 1% or even less than 1% gain. And that might come from the heat adaptation or heat acclimatization. Um, I think there is a big balance. We've learned a lot, like I said, you know, from over the last, you know, 10 years or so. Of There's a time and place to do some long indoor sessions where it's in a heat, uh, a high heat environment. But now with these technologies, we can actually see, have we achieved the goal of that session? So we may not have to be in there for four to six hours to get the actual adaptation, just like training, right? Rather than going out for a six-hour training ride, we add in other types of intervals like tempos, um, and we can can maximize a similar type of workout put in three hours that we might in six hours. And we can do the same thing um, with the tools and technologies that we have to maximize on athlete training, and I, I think, too, right, we, we need athletes to have the ability to still continue to tap into their training uh, at the high intensity. And if we're doing all our, our long training sessions inside, we're probably missing out on some of that race specificity that's really critical or crucial for that optimal performance.
0: Question about the the methodology that involves the sauna (laughs) is this simply riding and then jumping into the sauna at the end of the session and and getting the 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 heat um using the heat after the workout or how how is it being used
1: yeah that's a great question so it's a, a protocol um, from uh, Dr. Stacy Sims. Uh, she put this together with a, a few other um, sports scientists. Gosh, I don't even know when—probably uh, around 2010, I guess. 2012. I'd have to look back when, when, when we came out with a lot of this uh, data. And you're absolutely right. So uh, we have a couple different ways we use the sauna. Sometimes it's after a training session um, in normal environmental conditions, and an athlete would go into the sauna. And two things, we're trying to uh, continue to induce that uh, heat stress from being inside, in addition to a slight dehydration, which produces some of those heat shock proteins and and things that we actually know help produce that long-term heat acclimatization benefit. Um, Another way we also use it is that if we have an athlete doing a very specific intense indoor training session in our environmental room at a, at a high heat, high humidity environment, and that session might only be an hour, hour and a half, then we would go into the sauna directly after. Again, to maximize on basically the, what the body is doing, producing that uh, true acclimatization. So it's not just the plasma volume, but there's some other enzymes from the liver and. And things that we're looking for um, that help with more of that long-term, uh, long-term training adaptation that we're looking for for this acclimatization.
0: Well, I, I bring it up kind of half-jokingly because I don't want people out there listening to abuse the sauna in some way. There's probably a wrong way to do that. I, I just picture people putting garbage bags over themselves and walking into the sauna to try to lose weight and acclimatize in some way, and that could go wrong fast. So yeah. we're not we're not talking about that high school wrestling team uh, method of <laughs> weight loss and heat acclimation here.
2: I, I no, think not at all. The really important thing you brought up is you immediately said, "Well, we have a protocol that was developed. You've named some big names who came up with it." this was researched this was carefully regulated this is at a, a center that's got all the gear to make sure the athletes are doing it right this is not something to go Ooh, i got a sauna at home let's start having some fun and playing with this. yeah right right
1: yeah and i think you know not only for the sauna but for all of heat acclimatization it's really easy to go overboard um you know athletes you know i'm going to do a swift ride and uh, no fan in my room, in the bathroom and, you know, make it really hot and humid, but there is a, a time and place to do that. Um, and like I said, too, I think that's where some of the new technologies um, which are actually cost effective, you know, our core temperature pill system, um, it, it is a little bit expensive, $80 per pill, but you're not doing it every time you're in the heat. You're really trying to do it on key, pen, our key training sessions. So you're getting that feedback um and understanding so an athlete then can say okay when i feel like this this is what's actually happening but it is important right to make sure that we're we're not overdoing the fancy stuff the shiny stuff of like getting in a sauna you know wearing the garbage bag and putting on 20 layers and forgetting about just the fundamentals of actually training and recovery
0: okay Altitude effects. Let's turn our attention to a series of questions on altitude. These come from Amanda Barnes. She's in Truckee, California. Uh, Let's take these one at a time. How should I prepare for competition at higher elevation if I'm coming from a lower elevation? Is it better to arrive as close as possible to the competition or give a certain amount of time? Lindsay, let's let's start with that question. Let's start with you. We'll move on to the next question after we've uh, answered this one.
1: Perfect. Yeah, I think this is probably the most common question um, in altitude that I get from athletes um, in all different areas. And my, my quick answer is that it is ideal to show up as close to your event as possible or 10 plus days mm-hmm. prior. So there is, you know, a, basically we're looking at like a, eight to nine day gap in there where if if you're coming to competition and you think I can take a week off of work um, and get to an altitude and prepare and see the course and then have my competition and and you're there for five or six days, that's probably the absolute worst time. Um, So again, it's better to show up, you know, within 24 to 48 hours of competing or getting there, we have 10 plus days to really prepare and become acclimatized. And, you know, what really happens when we get to altitude and the reason for these is that within the first day, we, we have an increased heart rate. We have an increased respiration rate. Um, we do see our hemoglobin, which are those red blood cell carrying oxygen, carrying uh, uh, blood cells in the body begin to increase, but they're just like a, a quick uh, fight or flight system. It's not actually doing anything long-term. By the time we get to 10 days, we see some of those things begin to taper, meaning our heart rate has begun to come back closer to normal. Our breathing or respiration rate has come back to maybe our sea level or lower altitude uh, norms. And we're also starting to see some more long term benefits of that blood cell um, adaptation, that red blood cell adaptation that we get from altitude. For many years, like looking at the Leadville 100 Mount Bike Race, this is always. Uh, a hot topic with athletes that I've worked with in the past is saying, you know, we're going to a a more extreme altitude, um, and coming from sea level. And and when should I get there? And, you know, the same rule applies whether you're it's your first time and you're looking to complete the race or it's your 14th time and you're trying to win the race. Again, you know, there's some altitude big impacts that that can have really negative impacts if we, if we don't arrive properly, Um, in that kind of that gray area.
2: I remember about 10, 11 years ago, I had a friend who was racing for Bizzle, and this was right before Bizzle became the the top team in the U.S., and they were going to tour Utah, and he was telling me, oh, we're going to crush everybody. We're flying in six days ahead of time, and we're going to go live at altitude and then just destroy this race. And I remember hearing him saying that and just going, oh, this is not going to end well. (laughs) And, And sure enough, they did not have a good race uh, it's kind of a, a hard thing to understand, but uh, like I, the, the answer you just gave is literally what I, I wrote down. Um, and just to add, you know, maybe just a, a little bit of an explanation of the, some of the physiology, um, when you arrive at altitude, your immediate response is not to try to get the aerobic system adjusted the aerobic system never adapts quickly. So actually, the immediate adaptation is to build your tolerance to handle anaerobic metabolism, so your ability to clear lactate, uh, to basically not hurt as much when you get that acid buildup. So that's why when you immediately arrive at altitude, you can kind of handle it. But after you've been there a couple of days, your body says, okay, I'm here for a bit, and it starts to switch towards those longer-term adaptations, so working towards building your aerobic system's uh, ability to handle altitude. So you have this period of time in between where you're actually at your absolute worst. Though, and addressing here in your opinion on this, I will say if you are somebody who regularly travels to altitude, you you do have a, a bit of a memory, and um, you, you can probably break some of the rules because your body's going to get back to normal quickly. I certainly noticed after i moved back to toronto from colorado uh, for my first couple years i'd fly back to colorado within a day or two
0: i'd be back to normal have you seen that in athletes as well Lindsay?
1: yeah uh, it is true um you know again the more times you've been to altitude and each one of those visits to altitude the longer you're at altitude you you do have a bit of a ability to adapt more quickly but what we see in at the training center, we actually have an ability where we do total hemoglobin mass testing. Um, so an athlete will come in and we'll test them the first day that they arrive. And then some athletes we've tested, you know, once a week um, or more frequently. Um, other athletes will wait to the end of their acclimatization to see how well they're acclimatizing. So what's happening from at a blood level. And it is really individual, but there are some simple things that can just totally mess that up. So if you come to altitude, and let's say, you know, you live at altitude, but you've gone somewhere for three, four weeks, and you're coming back, but you're dehydrated, or you haven't actually done a little bit of a nutritional perspective of a slightly increase of carbohydrate intake to make up for some of that respiration and increased heart rate that we see that if we're not staying on top of that, what normally could be, you know, your, you know, you know three to five day where you get over that initial hump, it could take you five to seven days. So, you know, again, it, it's not a huge difference, but if you're trying to plan it around a race, those two days could be really critical because one of those days could actually fall on your competition day. If, if you're not doing all these other factors, again, some of them are just simple. So going back to, I think what we said earlier, coming to altitude, the most important thing, get as fit as you can so that you can handle those conditions and then making sure hydration and nutrition are pretty intact. Those definitely make a big difference too.
0: Yeah, and and that really gets at the second uh, the second question here from our listener Amanda. How do athletes differ in their response to altitude in terms of reductions in pace or power? Is it a wait and see type approach, or are there general guidelines we can offer as rough expectations?
1: There are some just general guidelines. Um, there's some models out there um, that show really once you get to an altitude of really 5,000 to 6,000 feet or higher. So if you're at that 3,000, 3,500 feet, you know, it might be altitude coming from sea level, but there's still not a significant impact in your power output um, or pacing output. Um, but once we start getting to that uh, kind of moderate altitude, or low altitude and rising to that moderate altitude, that's where we start to see pretty significant uh, detriments um, for athletes in their power output. Again, those models, it, they range anywhere between 6 to 10% if we're looking for an athlete going from sea level somewhere to about six to 8,000 feet. But when I look at it from a sports science perspective, 6 to 10% is a huge difference. Um, you know, if we're looking at an FTP power, you know, even just of 100 watts simple math that's you know a uh, you know a significant uh, change in power output and now you're getting 200 300 400 watt outputs for certain athletes that's a pretty big shift in numbers one of the, the things again going back to some tools that we can actually use as an athlete goes to altitude do a series of just general training sessions easy rides some interval days and we can actually see what that athlete's individual differences at altitude I have a few athletes, they do a running race here in Colorado Springs and they run to the top of Pikes Peak as the Pikes Peak Marathon. And, and I've seen athletes that come from sea level, and as they get to that kind of more extreme or high altitude uh, output when we, we're running with power meters and have have some good data, that their outputs, power outputs begin to decrease, you know, anywhere between, you know, more like eight to fifteen percent. And then I have an athlete that lives and trains at altitude. More frequently, and their out, their power output decline is only maybe six to eight percent. Um, so it, there is a lot of individuality, and that goes back to what we were saying earlier: is that you know if you if you bend to altitude more, um, more times and longer times, uh, your body will acclimatize more quickly, and you'll have slightly less decline in your power output. But what that decline is, again, it's really individual, and and I think this is where a power meter can be really helpful in training. Uh, For athletes to have that as a tool to understand, you know, what what their limit limitations are, especially they, you know, quote unquote, like go up the mountain.
2: So I still remember the the first race I ever did at altitude. This is when I was living literally right by the ocean, so I was living at sea level. uh, Was the Parker Main Street Omnium here in Colorado, and it started with a prologue, really short prologue, so the, the times were all under 10 minutes. And there was a two minute climb and then about a mile from the top of that climb to the finish. So me being an idiot, uh <laughs> planned it the way I would plan it at sea level and goes, okay, this is a short prologue, so I'm gonna have to do some good hard above threshold efforts. So I just said, All right, I'm gonna hit that two-minute climb and take it up above threshold and then bring it back down to threshold for that that final mile to the finish. So I hit that climb, hit it pretty hard, uh, got to the top of it and just went (gasps) like that. And then that mile to the finish, I don't think I broke 200 watts and I got passed by three people. (laughs) I was toast. So an important thing to know about if you come up to altitude and you race at altitude is not just the loss in your power, but the recovery you can do a good hard one, two minute effort above threshold at sea level. And yeah, you're going to be gasping for air for a couple seconds, but you're ready to do another effort pretty soon, you know, in 30 seconds. You do a big effort like that at altitude above threshold and you can just be done. It can be five, 10 minutes before you can pedal the bike again.
1: That made me think of one last thing I know with some of the, the athletes and cyclists that I work with here in Colorado Springs is that pre-COVID world, we would go to sea level quite a bit. Um, we have another velodrome out in LA. And for the athletes, we actually had had them do field testing at sea level. And then we did field testing at altitude. So we actually had some different numbers. So we can actually create, you know, very specific recommendations for each athlete based upon that, right? So, so we're not going to an area where we're one and done with our intervals, and we're not getting that maybe the load our training stimulus that we need from it. Um, or that way we can really give some specific feedback and say, hey, we need to get, you know, four or five of these efforts in to get that overall training stimulus.
0: All right, let's move on to a question from Eric Olsen. He's in Aarhus, Denmark. This one has to uh, t- has to do with FTP testing. Coming from a middle and long distance running background, I have a hard time grasping the 4DP test You've mentioned. To me, a five minute maximal effort is like, do this, go home, and cry, much like you would experience in a 1500 meter track competition. I would not be able to do a 20 minute test 10 minutes after and still get near that FTP figure. What does this tell me? Don't go this deep on the five minute test, or don't do this particular test. So, correct me if I'm wrong, the 4DP test is sort of modeled after what Neil Henderson came up with. So
2: this is Neil Henderson's test. So Mm -hmm. you do the whole thing in under an hour and it starts with a couple five second sprints. Yep. Then you do a five minute all out effort. Then you take about a 10 to 15 minute break. Then you do a 20 minute effort. Then you take another kind of 10, 12 minute break and you do a one minute effort.
0: All right. So what, so what, uh, Eric here is having trouble with is you say, do the five minute maximal effort. And he's like, okay, then I'm going to do that. I'm going to fall off my bike and I'm going to be done for the day. So how does this, how does this test um, indicate my FTP? Lindsay, do you have some thoughts here?
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the 4DP test really, it's a, a critical power test, right? We're trying to establish a critical power curve which is like a sigmoidal curve. So i like that S-shaped curve. And in order to do that, you need at least three data points. So with this 4DP test that Neil and through his, he's come up with through Apex coaching, they've got four data points. Um, and, and again, the big picture of this is to identify or profile you as an athlete. Are you a pursuiter? Are you a time trialist? Are you a sprinter or attacker or climber or more of an all around athlete? And then it's helping you to, maximize on your areas of strengths or weaknesses throughout the season as you get ready for competition. Um, I I find that the most important thing to keep in mind is that yes, each one of these efforts has to be all out because you're trying to quote unquote properly shape the curve. But what's interesting in this is that it's going all out for the five minutes. And yes, you may only have 10 minutes to recover before that 20 minute effort. But we're looking the 20 minute effort. It's not uh, saying this is your 20-minute FTP necessarily, so I think that's where we have to kind of have a slightly different shift, but it helps to give us an idea of what's happening on that curve from 20 minutes to 60 minutes, all the way out to, you know, two to three hours. So going into that 20-minute effort slightly pre-fatigued helps to establish that uh, a curve that that were that you can use within your training prescription for, you know, intervals. And then I know part of the whole uh, 4DP testing, you know, they've got a whole process of figuring out what type of intervals and training sessions work best for you to maximize on your, your potential as an athlete.
0: Trevor, what uh, what thoughts would you share here?
2: I agree completely. Uh, I think that five minutes has to be all out, and so I'll quickly share a story because I do this test. Mm-hmm. And I have a route that I use, and there's a climb that I really like to use for the five-minute test because if I do it right, I hit the top of the climb right at the end of that five minutes. And so I went and did this test in November after I'd taken a long off-season and forgot to adjust my start line Mm -hmm. for the fact that, well, I'm not very fit right now. So I do absolute all-out five-minute effort and hit the five-minute mark 30 seconds from the top of the climb. And I couldn't make it to the top.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So you went all
2: out. I could not finish that 30 seconds at any wattage. I I had to basically put my foot down before I almost fell over and then just turn around and descend the climb (laughs) once I could breathe again. So I am thinking that that is all out. Mm -hmm. And I still, 15 minutes later, did a good 20-minute test. But part of the reason for this and the reason I, I, I like the way Neil has designed it is I've seen a lot of athletes who have a very strong anaerobic system, but a weaker aerobic system basically fake a 20-minute test. They go and do the 20-minute test uh, fresh and producing a lot of that energy anaerobically, and it makes it look like their threshold power is much higher than it is. This 20-minute test is trying to get at what sort of power can you do, mostly relying on your aerobic system. And so the reason you have that five-minute test beforehand is to really basically burn up those anaerobic stores. And while you'll recharge some of them before you do the 20-minute test, you're still going to go into that 20-minute test and produce a more true aerobic
0: power. Is this in a way a shortcut to the 60-minute test? So you're essentially taking the 20-minute test Preloading your system beforehand so it depletes some of those energy systems that you might be able to tap into in the 20 minute And then the 20 minute quote unquote, the number that you get out of that is more representative of what you would do in a 60 minute test if you actually did a full 60 minute test.
2: The issue I have with somebody when they do it fresh and they're really relying on anaerobic energy is you hear. I think it was Dr. Coggins who came up with this, the multiply it by 95% and you get your 60-minute your FTP. I have seen athletes that put out a 20-minute test where I go, if we multiply it by 95%, that's too high. Right. Um, I think when somebody does this 20-minute test after that five-minute effort, uh, like I said, you're getting something that's uh, a truer aerobic test, Is would we say well, the power you put out in that 20-minute test is the same as what you would do in a 60-minute test fresh. I'm not willing to go that far. Mm -hmm. I would still have a multiplier, but I would feel more confident in the multiplier.
0: Right. Well, I I ask that question because I feel like people are always looking for shortcuts and they might think that, okay, this isn't the 0.95 equation. This is taps into these other systems first. I'm a little fatigued. I'll do the 20 test, 20 minute test. So it's actually closer to that 60 minute figure that I would see if I actually did it. I just don't have to go through the pain of doing a full 60 minute test. And I, I don't know if that's a misuse of this test by people or not, or if it, like you said, it, it's getting closer and you still have to take other things into consideration and, and all of that. But.
1: Yeah, I think um, it, it doesn't take the place of a, a pure 20 minute, 40 minute, or 60 minute uh, FTP test. I do know, like, when, when you go, when you sit down and talk to Neil about this, you know, he's saying, you know, this is a good test. It's good if you are also time crunched. So we're not needing to go out and test, you know, four times to get the numbers. Um, we can get this done in one session, and it's going to be pretty darn accurate to what your, your, you know, power curve will look like. I think the most important thing too to keep in mind is that this 40p test, it's it is helping to pinpoint a FTP power. But what the difference of just going out for a pure 20 minute or you know 60 minute uh, time trial type of effort is that. That's establishing a true FTP power, but it's not giving you what your time to exhaustion is, as an example. You know, because you as an athlete, and we see this with elite athletes, is that their FTP power doesn't change much, you know, at at some point in their career. So they can go out and ride at, you know, 350, 375 watts, that's their threshold power. But what changes throughout their career is the amount of time that they can sustain it. Um, And, and even through the the course of this test, even though you're not going out to 60 minutes or plus, it actually helps to pinpoint that because of looking at the other markers, those shorter efforts with the combination of the long effort to help to pinpoint when that, that shift actually takes place.
0: All right, let's shift to one final question. This has to do with uh, fasted training. It comes from Matt Search. He's in Ottawa, Canada. He has been, and he noted this, I'll just mention it. Not sure if it's relevant, but he's been on a plant-based diet for the last 16 years. Matt writes: Does the research suggest that riding in the fasted state, or at least improving fat max function through fasting adaptations, is correlated with decreased rates of inflammation and perhaps increased rates of free radical processing and clearing? I'm thinking of an earlier episode where you discussed the spectrum of free radical clearing rates between pros, and I'm wondering whether there's a link to fat max and thereby the proportional amount of time spent in, quote, fat-burning mode. In other words, might increasing fat max via fasting protocols improve recovery during and between periods of time spent on the bike? Lindsay, what are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, so this one's interesting. You know, there's, I would say there's a, a lot more research to show that all of this sounds legit, but there are some uh, holes from a physiological perspective. Um, I know there there are quite a few uh, uh, dietitians and sports scientists out there that believe that yes, that you can do this. My philosophy on it is that um, it, it doesn't happen. So uh, basically what happens there's some it's is really based on some factual premises so fat oxidation happens at a faster rate when insulin is low so when you're in a fasted state uh, we also know insulin, insulin levels are influenced by blood glucose and when blood glucose is at its lowest when we're fasted um, we'll see this fat oxidation happen and low to moderate intensity um, training you know really utilizes more fatty acids as an energy substrate So when you look at kind of the factual premises, it all sounds legit. But in reality, when you put it into play, that's not necessarily what happens. A lot of the studies that are out there, they're not done on as well of highly trained individuals. Um, So they're more untrained individuals. So they actually can show that they're getting a better adaptation in a fasted state. Um, so I think that's one thing just to be cautious of, and that's, I find, where a lot of the information comes from. The the one thing that I see the most important thing is that everyone can lose fat, but it really doesn't have much to do with fasting um, or not fasting. Um, really, it's a, a law of, like, thermodynamics, where you're shifting your energy balance of calories in versus calories out. Um, and, and I think that's the most important thing is that, if we're trying to improve our fat burning mode, we should focus on our nutritional perspectives, and then let the training be the training. So we're not compromising our our ability to produce power um, or even recover on the bike. So my philosophy, I'd rather have athletes look at, you know, a well, a more well-balanced diet and getting in the right calories and calories out to get that, that, body mass in the direction that they're aiming for rather than trying to go out in a in a constantly fasted state.
0: Trevor, I assume you pretty much agree with that, huh? Absolutely.
2: It's a really interesting question. Uh, this is one I, I, I tried to dig into some research for last night. Uh, I, I think you said one of the really important things, which is there. there's two questions here. One is impact of intermittent fasting on inflammation in general, and then impact of fasting while cycling, what, what, that, what effect that has on inflammation. And I, I do wonder if there's a bit of a confusion of the two. There's certainly a fair amount of research showing that intermittent fasting can be great to reduce inflammation because that's when your body goes into a, a kind of a repair clearing mode. But does that mean that it gets better when you get on the bike? No, you're, you're producing a a completely different reaction. In terms of the free radical processing, what we talked about, so you mentioned our previous episode, we talked about that in pros, it had less to do with their ability to process fat for fuel better than amateurs. What you were seeing in pros was a much greater uh, natural antioxidant production and in pros, you were also seeing a, a greater efficiency. So particularly in the electron transport chain, you were seeing less electron leakage in, in complex four of the, the electron. So I'm getting deep into the science, but basically, uh, they were producing less oxidative stress and they were they were enhancing their own antioxidants. That had nothing to do with their, um, their fat max. So I did try to look into this to see if there was any research and did find found only two studies so one was on time restricted eating effects on performance immune function and body composition in elite cyclists uh, and certainly as i said before found that uh, time restricted eating helped with reduce inflammation but that's not time restricted eating like that's not riding fasted that's general dietary approach of the day so there's a bit of evidence there but I did find another study that looked at, so this is brand new, this just came out, uh, a review, efficacy of popular diets applied by endurance athletes on sports performance, beneficial or detrimental, a narrative review. And so they actually uh, addressed that question of exercising while, while fasted. They found one study, uh, it was a, a Ramadan study, uh, that looked at the effects of exercising well in a fasted state and said, no change was observed in the testosterone cortisol ratio between the RIF trials, that's the Ramadan uh, fasting. Mm-hmm. Uh, a significant rise was reported in IL-6, adrenaline and noradrenaline concentrations after their RIF. So basically you're seeing an
0: actual increase in inflammation. Any any other thoughts here on the question from Matt.
1: Yeah, I would say the, the one thing, uh, Trevor, that you've touched base on, too, uh, I didn't listen to the podcast on the pro, so I want to go back and, and listen to that one as well on the free radical clearing rates. When you're looking at the professional cyclists is that, again, the main reason is that the change in their oxidative stress is due to their efficiency, and that's the time course of a training adaptation. So I think that's something important to keep in mind as well. Um you know, again, the more efficient uh, you can become pedaling and on a bike, the more uh, improved economy that you have. So your internal economy, the economy to the, to the bike as well um, are both improving. So I think that's something too. just, I was just thinking of that as you're going through that of like, why would that take place? And, and it is really based upon their time course of just long-term training adaptation and the, the hours and time in the saddle that, that we're seeing that change in their oxidative stress.
2: That's actually a really good point, that there's been several studies looking at athletes eating a keto diet uh, where they're relying much more on fat for fuel and it shows that they become less efficient, that when you're completely relying on fat for fuel, there is a greater oxygen cost. So that would, as you're saying, uh, increase
0: the oxidative stress. Well, thank you, Lindsay Golich, for joining us today on Fast Talk. It's been a pleasure.
1: Yeah, thanks. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, Lots of great questions asked. So thank you very much.
0: That was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts and be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. Join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com to discuss each and every episode. Become a member of Fast Talk Laboratories at FastTalkLabs.com slash join and become a part of our education and coaching community. For Lindsay Golich and Trevor Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening.